This is At Ease, the military podcast of Thomas Nelson Community College. I'm Gary Pounder from the military team here at TNCC. And on today's installment of the pod, we're going to be talking about an area that is of growing interest to many in the military community, that being careers and degrees and credentialing training programs in the STEM field. And here to talk about that topic with us is Jean Frank. She's the uh, program head and Associate Professor of Engineering Technologies here at Thomas Nelson Community College. Gene, first of all, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the podcast. I'm so happy to. Thank you, Gary. I really appreciate this. We really enjoy having you here on the uh, on the podcast, to say the least. Uh, as we get going today, we should point out that, uh, like many of the folks who appear on the uh, program here, you, in fact, are a veteran, and your career kind of began as a member of the U.S. Navy. So tell us about your experiences in the, in the Navy and how that perhaps laid the foundation for the career that you uh, eventually built. You know, I was very fortunate. I joined in 81, and I graduated high school in 1979. And I knew I wanted to go to college someday, but I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I wanted to go in the Navy because they paid for me to travel. They paid for me to get trained, and I always wanted to be working on airplanes. So. Now, tell us about what your your job actually, your rating actually was in the Navy. Obviously, it was something that was aviation-related. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was an aviation structural and hydraulic mechanic, and I worked myself. I was the only female for years since uh, World War II training. I came in right after Vietnam was ending in 76, so a lot of the guys I was serving with were Vietnam veterans. And I was an aviation structural and hydraulic mechanic, and I worked myself all the way up to troubleshooting on the flight line. So I was the last person to look at the pilot and say the plane's ready to go. I loved it. Well, now, you mentioned the time that you came in, and that was roughly the time I came in the Air Force. Now, you, as a woman in the Navy during the early 80s, that certainly made you something of a pioneer in the rating that you were in, because I'm guessing at that time there were not a lot of women working in the aviation-related ratings in the U.S. Navy. That's true. I was the only one in my A school, which was the beginning training uh, of, for my rating. Um, there was no females in there. There were other females in there that served as yeomans and the medical fields and other aviation areas as far as uh, the avionics, but they, nobody was in there for structures and hydraulics and everything else. But So I didn't think of it then as being a pioneer. Looking back now, I look at it and go, wow, you know, but I have such a... I just love what Thomas Nelson is, and I love what the Navy did for me. And I think that veterans need to know when you get out, there is a world of uh, education available for you where you don't have to start out at ground zero. Absolutely. And that's what I was very fortunate. Someone told me um, about this school that when I got out of the Navy, because we didn't have uh, the GI Bill when I was in. We had something called VEEP. Oh, I remember VEEP well, yes. I was a VEEP recipient, too. So you know, uh, the only thing you could do with that is maybe buy a car. Pretty much. (laughs) That was it. Pretty much. And and that's the reason why that, uh, you know, we now have the newer versions of the GI Bill, the Montgomery Mm -hmm. GI Bill, post-9-11 GI Bill, because let's face it, VEEP was a very, very crappy education benefit program. Now, I've got to ask you, though, again, going back to your status as a naval aviation uh, maintenance pioneer, the reception you got, you mentioned you were the only woman in your A school. When you were expressing an interest with a recruiter to go into a field like this, did the recruiter try to dissuade you because you were going to be one of the few women in naval aviation maintenance? No, he didn't, actually. And looking back now, there were hints 
But I think because when I got out of A school, I was told a week before the men where I was going to be stationed. And I was going to be stationed in Japan. And at that time, I was, I was upset because I wanted to go to Europe. Mm-hmm. My only conception of Japan at that time was, because don't forget, this was fresh from World War II. And um, the only conception I had of Japan that time was those Godzilla movies. I did not <laughs> want to go to Japan. So I asked my CEO, I said, why am I going to Japan? And why am I finding out, first off getting this orders before anybody else is. And they said, well, we need a female over there in aviation, and you're the only one. So and you're going to be the trailblazer yeah, for the Navy so in Japan. That, I didn't think about it at that time, and for a long time I was the only female in the squadron in my area. Um, I've got to ask you, when you made it to Japan, to your um, your permanent duty station over there, what kind of reception did you get from the men who were in the unit? Did you encounter any sexism being the first woman serving in that unit? Yes, and I think the biggest part of it, there was no sexual assault or anything like that. They were very respective of that, for me, in my personal opinion. I've heard of other, you know, I don't want to go into that. I'm just going to talk what happened to me. But what I didn't like was, because I was aviation, I was not allowed to be on the Midway. The USS Midway was the aircraft carrier out of Yokohama. Mm -hmm. I could not um, serve on that. So I took up a billet for a land-based over at at Sugi. And I, I took up someone on the ship. They couldn't come and serve on the land because I had that billet. Yeah, of course, we should point out that change, things have changed mm-hmm. since that time. Women now can deploy, can go to sea as yep. part of the ship's complement, as part of the uh, carrier air wing. So women now in the same rating that you held, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 80s, now they would not face that restriction. If the squadron right. deploys and goes to sea on the carrier, deploys on the carrier, they're going to be right there along with their male counterparts. Now, you were talking a moment ago about what the Navy did for you. And you know, looking back, you know, what are some of the things you think that the Navy did that really kind of helped put you on the track that you wound up on? And maybe as it did for many of us, you know, that military service, how did it kind of, you know, steer you in the right direction? You know, that's an excellent question. That is a really good question because when you're in the service, I think you're in there. And I know for me, I I took advantage of the partying. I took advantage of going out and seeing the other cultures because, and I took advantage of the training that was free. And I really took that for granted. But when I got out, I realized that the Navy, one, gave me discipline, which I didn't realize that I had because I came from a very strict Roman Catholic household where... I was already being beaten to death by the nuns and my parents on what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. But it gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. It gave me confidence to believe in myself. And, you know, as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old sailor going overseas by myself, you know, a lot of us do that. And how many people over there are going with families for the first time with no help, you know, especially the spouses that are staying home while the other one deploys and taking care of those children. So you learn community. You learn teamwork. You learn the supervision, you learn discipline, and it really gives you a lot of self-esteem, I think. It did for me anyway. So I was very fortunate at that, and it gave me a career to build upon. Even though now I'm not doing aviation, I did for years afterward, but it gave me that foundation. And when I went first went to Lockheed and Boeing, when they found out that I was a sailor and they know the training that we get, they were very um, – that's why I got hired. I was pushed ahead of a lot of people because of that training that I had in the service. 
So it definitely gave you a leg up in, in the aviation career field. So you spent six years on active duty. You got out, and I think you were telling me before the uh, taping began here today, you went to work for Lockheed, mm-hmm. and you just mentioned a moment ago that your Navy background experience and training really kind of helped you get your foot at the door there with Lockheed. And at the same time, you're working for Lockheed. You're beginning to pursue your education and training. I think one of the early steps for you was getting that aviation or the airframe and power plant license that you yes. need from the FAA. Tell us about that experience. Well, when I, uh, just before, I was on the fence of getting out or staying in, um, and I was offered NDI school, uh, non-destructive inspection. And um, I would have been the only female in that class as well. This was 1986 I got offered for this. And I met someone who was in Lockheed, and they wanted a systems analyst to help design the P3s And because I was out at Moffett Field at the end of my career in the service. And he said that um, they'd like to hire me, and of course, you know, we, would we make a month, $300 a month back then or something? You know, they offered, It wasn't very much. Yeah, they offered, I think it was $50,000 back then, which was a lot of money. It's still good money today. Oh, yeah, yeah. But... And so I went and told my commanding officer that I'm not going to take the NDI school because if I took the school, that would have had to make me do six more years. That would have put me over 12, and I would have stayed in for the 20. So I had to figure things out. All right, do I want to stay? Do I want to get out? Blah, blah, blah. So I decided to get out because I wanted to go back east, be near my family, blah, blah. But um, when I got out of the um, and went into Lockheed, um, they offered – they said, if you want to continue working in aviation, you need to get your FAA power plant license. Because once you get that license, that'll take th- that license is yours forever until you do something wrong or you die. And I'm glad they talked me into getting that because I ended up, when I went back east and worked for Grumman, it was because of that license and my Navy training, not my degrees. It was because of those two licenses that I got there with that job. So take advantage of the training. Anything that they give you, take advantage of that. You, you, you might think, I'm not going to use that. Keep it. That might be your job that you're going to get because Absolutely. of that license. Absolutely. Now, A&P school is typically, what, about two years long? I didn't have to do the A&P school. I went right in and took the test. Wow. It was because wow. of the six years in the Navy doing this job. You don't have to. Wow. So when you get out, as a, if anyone listening to this is in aviation working on the aircraft, do that as soon as you get out or right before you get out because then the Navy will pay for those. Because I, back then it was $500 a test, and it's mm-hmm. three different tests. It's the general, the airframe, and the power plant. You have to take a written test, which is like 200, 250 questions. Then you have to do an oral. Then you have to do a practical. The practical was a weekend somewhere taking apart an engine or doing these odd jobs by yourself. So it's not an easy test, but you should have no problem coming out of the service because you work on everything in the service. And, you know, you're raising a very good point there, too. And it's one thing to a sense I think we can say the military has kind of come full circle. While the military has always put a big emphasis on getting your college degree if you don't have one, if you have Mm -hmm. a bachelor's degree, you know, getting your graduate degree, things like that. There is a renewed emphasis now in the military on credentialing and certification, realizing that it takes service members because of all the obligations on their time, deployments, you know, the family issues, things like that. It can take the average service member up to eight years to earn their associate's Mm -hmm. degree. And that means that the vast majority of young folks coming in who will spend four years on active duty, maybe six, will not be able to finish that degree while they're in uniform. However... By drawing, as you did, upon their military training experience and education, they can get a credential, they can get a certification that can help them lead to a really good civilian job. 
and do that in a relatively short period of time. And now through programs like COOL, which is the Credentialing Opportunities Online, what the military has done, they have literally gone through for every MOS rating AFSC in the military and identified credentials that are recognized in the civilian world that relate to those military jobs. And now they're encouraging service members to go ahead and pursue these credentials while they're in uniform. And as in your case, in many examples, they can take the education, take the training they've already gotten, and that can either help them get that credential by setting for the credentialing or certification test, or it puts them well along in the training pipeline where they need just maybe another course or two to be able to sit for the exam. And the other thing the COOL program does It identifies additional funding sources that the service member can use to pay for these additional credentials and certifications because under the rules as they stand right now, most of the services still will not allow the service member to use their tuition assistance money for any kind of non-credit program. Mm, So if you were taking classes toward your A&P in the Air Force or the Navy right now, your TA money will not cover that. But through COOL, there are other pools of money out there they identify for the service member where they can potentially tap into those. Now, one more thing that's kind of interesting, too, and you may find of interest as a STEM educator, the Army now has taken the rather radical step of creating a program which is called Credentialing Assistance, or CA, to complement TA. And what they're saying is a soldier can take the $4,500 a year they get in TA money, and they're no longer required to simply use it for credit awarding classes that lead to a degree. They can now take that money and use it for credentials and certifications uh, that don't actually have to relate to their military MOS. So if you're an Army cargo handler at Fort Eustis, and you want to be an EMT or you want to be uh, maybe get your initial cyber certification, uh, you can come, you know, and uh, use that money to take your classes in A-plus, Network-plus, Security-plus. So, you know, there's some hope that maybe the other services will follow the Army's example. But I, I think, again, it's kind of ironic. The pathway that you took, you know, several years ago, the military now has finally, you know, realized how important these credentials really are. And they're, you know, doing things now to encourage that and build these pathways so more young service members and veterans can draw upon their military training, education, and get those credentials that, as in your case, you know, can lead to a really rewarding and well-paying civilian job. Boy, you brought up a good point, and I wish we did have those kind of things back then, but I'm glad, I'm gl- very glad to hear that they are doing things like that. Absolutely. Because I will tell you, as a, I work, I'm from aviation and the nuclear power industry, I did 40 years doing that before I became an educator. I would hire a veteran with credentialings over someone with a two-year degree, knowing that they would go back, the veteran would get their degree, but they have all that experience. They could hit the ground running. Absolutely. Where the college is great, but they have to have some kind of training on some of the equipment that they have at your company because every company has different software. They use different equipment. So that's great that they have those kind of things. Now, in your own case, obviously, you know, getting the ANP certification was a big initial step for you, but at some point you got on the academic track because – if I'm not mistaken, looking over your biography, you've got four associate degrees, bachelor's, master's degrees. 
At what point did you decide you needed the academic credentials to go along with the vocational credentials? Well, you know, I was very lucky when I was in aviation. Um, I was in it for 25 years, and my parents got sick, and I was in Florida back then, um, and I knew I had to move up north. And I was lucky enough I got offered a job with Verizon, and I got offered a job with a with a power company up in Pennsylvania, Exelon Power, and which is the nuclear power plant. So I took that job based off of my electrical two-year electrical degree that I had. And unfortunately, I got hurt there. Mm. I fell from a transformer during an ice storm, and my arm was way Ooh. folded way back, so it's all metals and rods right now. But I took those degrees, and I went to Thomas Edison College. And the FAA license and that two-year degree almost gave me my full bachelor's degree. So I needed another year to go. And back then, this was early 90s, they just started doing the online classes. So that gave me the bachelor's. And I got hired here at Thomas Nelson because of those two-year degrees. Not my aeroscience engineering degree from Thomas Edison, because we don't do have mm-hmm. aviation programs here. Sure. So you never know where your education is going to take you. When the service offers you to get training in something, take it. When you get out of your company and they offer you, hey, we're going to send you to this type of training, take it. Because you could take all that stuff, come to Thomas Nelson, come to ODU, come to Virginia Tech. You could take those and make it into credits. And that raises, you know, a point we want to really touch on here on the podcast today, and that is we hear this so often from military students and veterans because, again, they've spent years in the military. They have, dis- they have mastered very difficult MOSs, career fields, skills, you know, what they had to do in their military job. And it's kind of drummed into you from day one of basic training. Hey, you know, you're picking up valuable education and experience here, and this can be converted into credit. It can be used toward, in some cases, you know, civilian certification, licensure, credentialing, and also into academic degrees. So for that young military member or vet who's listening to the podcast here today, who's looking for a way to leverage or build a game plan for leveraging that military experience and education, what kind of advice would you give them as someone who has come down this pathway yourself? I would say to go to the college, talk to the advising section, and have them look. Don't assume that you're not going to get anything. Oh, I don't have a degree. I don't have anything. Experience counts. And what's nice is a lot of the colleges, especially for the um, AAS degrees, we give credits for some of those classes. And this, uh, the new AAS for technical supervision does exactly that. You can get up to 23 credits based off of your experience towards this two-year degree. It's all online, and then you don't have, only have to go to school for another year and get a two-year degree, which is, which is nice as it's pathwayed, articulated right to ODU. Sure. And let's talk about that program right now because, <laughs> you know, when you look at uh, schools these days, both two- and four-year it seems like everybody is offering a degree in technical management, technical supervision, which again is typically billed as being, you know, transfer friendly. We can do a lot to leverage your existing education, training, credit, stuff like that. How do you think the degree that we have, the program we have here at Thomas Nelson, what differentiates that from the other tech management, tech supervision degrees that are out there? Well, the one thing I have to say is when you come into the technical supervision program, you, ha- you have to take the IND 198, which is a portfolio class. And in that class, you're writing based on your experience. 
and that tells you how many credits you can get to. And what's nice about that is a lot of the other colleges don't have that. This degree was originally written for Dominion Energy, uh, Virginia Natural Gas, and um, Liebherr, other companies. They wanted their people that have technical experience. This is not a business management degree. This is not a supervisor degree. This is people with experience. And they're going to take this experience and put it to a supervisor position because they realize that a lot of their employees didn't have that supervisory experience. So what's nice about this degree is, yeah, you're getting experience for your technical, but now you're also going to learn what it is to be a supervisor. And I'm talking about the soft skill part of it. You're not just learning about the management and the, all the nice little quality things that you need to know, but there's also the soft skills, the communication that you need, the teamwork that you need. The, it, Everybody says that it's easy to be a manager. It's not. Nine times out of ten, you're dealing with the leadership and you're dealing with people and conflicts and things of that nature. So that's what this degree is geared towards. We want The reason it's called technical supervision is because you're getting the credits based on your technical aspects. But the rest of the degree is we're going to teach you how to be a supervisor. Let's talk about the element you were touching on a moment ago, that being the portfolio building mm-hmm. portion. I think that's the IMD 198 course. Yeah. Explain how that works and explain the various types of source documents, uh, diplomas, credentials, certifications that, you know, the typical student in the program can draw upon in building that portfolio of credit, which will then be rolled into the degree program. Well, you come into the class and you get the first week of the classes. You're going to go through everything in your portfolio, meaning what do you have as far as credentialing? Now, when you're in the service, the first thing out of your mouth is, I really don't have any credentials. I got a bunch of A schools. I might have C schools. I I don't know what the Army and the Air Force calls them, but take that. Give everything into your basic resume. Put that in there. You're going to get credit for that. And I don't mean credits. What I mean is I'm looking at that because you're going to write seven narratives and those narratives are going to be based on experience. You do not have to have proof of your experience. And believe it or not, by you writing that and me reading it, it's telling me whether you actually have that experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because that's what it's all about. You're writing a narrative based on your experience compared to these topics. The topics are safety. What are some of the things you did in safety? What are some of the things you may have done as a supervisor in supervisory roles? Now, just because you were not, quote, unquote, a supervisor, you as an airman or you as an E1 or an E2 or an E3 in the service, you're doing supervisory roles. You're doing time management. You're doing job management. You're doing task management. So those things count, and you're going to be writing about that. You're also going to be writing about problem solving in teams. Now, everybody's like, well, I don't really – as in the service, boy, that's our big thing is teamwork. And problem solving, you're troubleshooting systems day in and day out. Even if it's just changing a tire, what happens if that lug nut gets stuck? You know, you have to figure that out. That's the kind of things I want in these narratives. It tells me how you're thinking. What are your steps? Um, scheduling and task management, um, your process, any of the manufacturing processes that you might have worked on, um, lean principles, how did you solve it and what did you do to solve it? So it's things like that. And when you start, a lot of the students, when they start writing those narratives, that's when they realize, oh, wow, I do have experience. I do know how to do that. 
So it's, and we talk about that in class, um, how to do that and what the narrative is all about. But that's where you're going to get the credits, the 23 and it, credits. And it's the narrative that you're using as the source yes. for the credit as opposed to a transcript, as opposed to a yes. diploma. And that, I think, is a very important and very key differentiation because, you know, in so many cases we hear from military students and veterans that they present a transcript, maybe their joint service transcript, maybe a transcript from another college or university they attended. And it goes in front of an academic advisor or evaluator. And these folks do great work. You know, no ifs, no ands, or buts. And that's certainly true of the staff here at Thomas Nelson. But in some cases, uh, maybe it's not really covered in the ACE guide. Maybe the evaluator really doesn't have, you know, a lot of experience in evaluating military credit. That's when we hear the story from the military member, the veteran, that, hey, you know, I brought in this JST with all these hours of credit on here, but I'm getting nothing from the school. And again, it's based strictly on a document that, you know, the evaluator may or may not have a lot of experience with. By comparison, with the degree here, the tech supervision uh, degree that we're talking about, you as a professor with a very broad technical Mm -hmm. background in a lot of different areas, you're reading the narrative, you know, based on your extensive experience in education, you can tell how much experience this person has has in these various areas. And that then allows you to make the determination, okay, this person's going to get X number of hours of credit in this area, so many hours in this area. And then that all together comes basically together and builds that portfolio. Exactly. So let's just say that there's seven writing narratives that have to be done and just on those areas I just talked about. Each one of those, you can get up to three credits. So seven times three is 21. And then you get an extra two credits on top of it based on your resume and how you presented yourself in class. Um, did you write the, everything on time? Were your narratives the way that was descriptive? So that's 23 credits. That's, half, that's almost a year of the degree. It is. It is. And that you know, can put someone well down the road mm-hmm. toward having that degree and, you know, having it wrapped up. Instead of it being a two-year program, now it becomes a one-year program. Um, just in the time, we, I think we've had this degree here at Thomas Nelson for roughly two, maybe three years now. Uh, almost two, yeah. Have we found a lot of military students gravitating toward this program or coming in this program? Um, no, and that's why I changed it last October, November, I really made an effort to put everything online because I realized that it, the, a lot of the veterans, okay, they're, they're working, and the, even the ones that we had from Virginia Natural Gas, the shipyard, all those, they're working at night. I mean, they're working during the day, they're working at night, they're doing shift work. So this entire degree is online now, so active duty can take it. You could be in Japan and get this degree. And that really is an important feature. You know, we know based on the numbers given to us by DOD, we were talking about the TA program Mm -hmm. earlier, now TA and CA from the Army. But TA, as a DOD budget line item, is about $600 million a year paying for college classes. Yeah, a lot lot of money being devoted to it. And, you know, in, in some cases, they literally will run out of money before the end of the fiscal year, which indicates how popular and how important this program really is. But, uh, you know, with that much money being spent, we know that 85% of that $600 million a year is going to online classes. 
So it's very clear that those folks in uniform right now, that the online learning model works very well for them for obvious reasons. They've got a job. They've got a career. They, many of them have family obligations, as we talked about earlier. So it may be difficult at the end of the day to get to a school, get to a classroom, even on base. On the other hand, it's easier to go home, log on, put on the bunny slippers, you know, get a beverage there, and do your work. Oh, yeah, we're all in COVID right now. On your, on oh, your own yeah. schedule. So the online option, I think, is, ab- is, absolutely, is absolutely tremendous. Well, there's just one thing I'd like to add on to that, sure. too. Let's say um, you have a service person that wants this degree. They come in, they get it. They get out, and then they realize, you know what? I, I want to go back to school, but I want to be an engineer, or I want to be a biologist, or whatever. So they think, well, this technical supervision degree didn't do anything for me. Well, guess what? All those gen ed classes that you took and the 21 credits that was given to you is electives. So you can take almost those two years and put it towards a bachelor's degree. And then when you get to that bachelor's program, all you have to do is take those core classes. Absolutely. And I think we should point out, too, if I'm not mistaken, the technical supervision degree that we have here at Thomas Nelson fully articulates into a corresponding bachelor's yes, program at ODU. At ODU. Mm-hmm. And that's also online. The, uh, the bachelor's degree is online as well. So the service member, again, can come in, you know, build the portfolio, get up to 23 hours of credit. You know, it now becomes basically a one-year program to finish the associates, then take the full complement of 60 hours earned in that program, roll them into the bachelor's degree at ODU, and then do that program completely online, regardless of where their military career or their civilian career may be taking them. Exactly. And I think that's a very important point because, again, you know, you see a lot of associate degrees in tech management and even bachelors in tech management. And I hate to call them square fillers, mm-hmm. but in some cases for a military member, that's basically what they are. And folks say, okay, I've filled the square, uh, but I don't think there's a lot I can do with that. Conversely, with the program we have here at Thomas Nelson, there is that ability to roll it into the bachelor's program at TNCC, not lose any credits in the process. Or as you point out, Take those classes, take the core of classes, and then apply them to that bachelor's degree mm-hmm. of your choice. So I think there's a great degree of flexibility with the program here at Thomas Nelson that you don't necessarily see in corresponding programs at other community colleges or even in tech management programs at other schools at the bachelor's level. Yeah, I will tell you, every serviceman that's listening to me, Always go for the two-year. I've got four of them, and I'll tell you what. I've got two uh, bachelor's degrees and a master's degree on top of that. It's the two-year degrees that got me in the door in a lot of places. So don't discount it because it's a two-year degree because you can take those gen ed classes, as we call it, the math, the Englishes, and all that, and take it and roll it into your bachelor's or whatever you want to do. Now, for a service member or veteran who has an interest in the AAS and technical uh, supervision, what is the best way for them to contact Eugene to learn more about the program? Sure. Um, my email is frankj at tncc.edu. That's the best way to do it. And then I can direct you where you need to go or nine times out of ten I'm the program head, so deal with me. And I have a lot of service people writing me and emailing me asking them. And once uh, we talk, get you to roll in the program. You fill out a form, a simple form, and you'll see it on the website, tncc.edu slash technical supervision. tells you more about the program. And you fill out that form, and it, it just so nobody comes in that doesn't have any experience. Because if you don't have any experience, you're not going to be good in this program. Sure. 
Sure. Now, we should point out, you know, we've talked about the tech supervision uh, degree a great deal here today, but obviously that is not the limit of STEM-type programs and degrees here at Thomas Nelson. You're involved in some of the others. Let's talk about those in the time we have left. What are some of the other STEM tracks that students can choose from here at Thomas Nelson? Uh, I also teach in the Electronic Engineering Technology Program, which uh, a lot of our two-year students get right into NASA, and they get apprenticeships, and they do the Space Tech uh, certification, which Mm -hmm. is a mini FAA, Um, and they require it because it's not just aviation, it's aeroscience, anything that goes into the stratosphere, which NASA knows everything that they build goes up that high. Then we also have the Mechanical Engineering Technology. We also have certificates that are pathways like in the EET. You can get a certificate, and if you go to work right after that, you get a job from that certificate, you can come back a year, two years later, get another certificate. Oh, this now I'm a technician. I can make this much money. You come back, I want it five years from now. You know what? I, I, it's time for me to get a degree. I want to be a supervisor someday or whatever. So you want that two-year degree. All those certificates and courses, they go right into the degree program, and you only have to come back and take a couple of gen ed classes, and you got your degree. So nothing's lost. There's a pathway that stays within. It's built into the degree. There's also other certificates in mechatronics, and you also get Siemens certifications out of that. If you go into the EET, there's built-in certifications. We have the Fiber Optics Electronic Technicians Association. We have CERTEC. Uh, space tech is built into some of these. So there's a lot of different things that we do here in the engineering technologies for AAS, and every single AAS degree here at Thomas Nelson is articulated to ODU, meaning you graduate with that two-year degree, you start exactly off as a junior if you want to go for your bachelor's degree. You mentioned mechatronics a moment ago, and that's been you know a very hot field. It's been a real buzzword uh, you know, in the technology sector for a number of years now. For folks who are not familiar with mechatronics, explain what that degree, what that training involves, and what kind of careers a mechatronics certification or degree can set you up for. Okay, the mechatronics, there's a Siemens Level 1 and Level 2. Um, and the Level 1 is just basics. And what you get in that basics is you get the basic electricity, basic uh, mechanical. You learn some hydraulics, pneumatics, um, force, and things of that nature. And then a um, little bit of programming, the digital and what the mechatronics is, is the software, the electrical, and the mechanical to make an automated system work. And then level two is technician level. That's where you're actually almost supervisors. So what's, but what's nice about that is our EET program has everything of that too, except for the two mechanical classes that are required. But they're, again, built in to a degree as well. What kind of demand is there for somebody with a mechatronic certification? And for that matter, you know, what kind of demand is there for folks on the various STEM tracks we were talking about a moment ago? I've got to think demand in this day and age has got to be very high. It is very high. And one, one thing I do love about being here on the peninsula, it's such a small area, but man, we got NASA, we got J Labs, we got the shipyard, we've got three German companies here that are in automated systems. We have so many employers, we cannot graduate enough um, graduates, students to get them hired. They have to go outside of the peninsula to, to, to find people. They, they really are hurting for people to work. And if you're a service member, come in and get the credits to get to work. That's what they want. They want experienced people. And we should point out, too, these are great companies to work for, tremendous uh, benefit packages, things like that. And the starting salaries, from what I hear, are pretty good as well. They're average about anywhere from um, 60 to 70-something. Yeah. 
And, and again, we're talking about jobs and positions in some cases that don't even require a degree. They require, you know, that specialized certification and training. And in many cases, the training you get as part of that process can be rolled into a degree program. So it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And as we hear about so many things technical, there is the shortage you were talking about a moment ago. And among the folks we have in many of these fields right now, the workforce is graying and graying pretty rapidly. Uh, Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs fame made a comment a few years ago, said the average age of people in America that know how to make and fix things is about 58 years old. And these folks are getting ready to end their careers. And we're simply, as you indicate, we're not getting enough young people coming in the fields right now to take their place. Yeah, it, that's been a problem for a long time. I think me, you and I are baby boomers, so we know what that's like. But yeah, they're really looking for the young people to come in. I think the young people, though, they want to go into like the IT areas or the other areas. But we are hurting in STEM. We really are hurting for STEM that people know want to work with their hands they want to figure stuff out they want to make things work so stem is great i I wish i was 30 years younger (laughs) going into some of this stuff you and me both the the other thing i was going to touch on here in our discussion we meet in my job anyway doing outreach with the military population here in the local area i meet a lot of young folks working in technical fields ratings mos's afsc's and they're really good at their job And then you say, well, what about maybe looking at an associate's in engineering or maybe mechatronics or something like that? And there's kind of an intimidation factor because they start asking about, well, how much science and math do I need? And they'll say, well, I never really took anything beyond general math or algebra in high school. I never had physics. I never had chemistry. How do you work with a student who, again, has mastered a technical discipline in their military experience, but yet academically they may be weak in some of the subject areas that really form the core for these programs. How do you get them prepared for the mathematics, for the science they will need, even if they don't really have the academic background in that area right now? Well, I have to say, and I'm glad you asked that question, because that is a really good question. A lot of my students have difficulty in math, but what we do in the engineering technologies area is we don't just throw formulas out there and let you be out there on your own. You're actually applying this stuff. But to come into Thomas Nelson, regardless of what area you're going to go into, there's remediation areas that you can take for math and sciences. But I have to say that's one thing nice about this college. They work one-on-one with you. If you go into a pre-calculus class, you have instructors that are working with you one-on-one. If you're coming in and taking biology and physics, they're working with you one-on-one. It's a lot of labs, a lot of hands-on. So there is a lot of students that are very, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about this. But, you know, for these engineering technologies, you don't have to come in and take Calc 1, Calc 2, and Calc 3. If you want to be an engineer, that's what you need. But to go into these engineering technologies, you just need pre-calc. Sometimes not even that, just Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 and you're done. But we work with you. We show you why that formula is and how to use it and applying it. And that really is, I think, a very important point because, again, as you point out, for these particular degrees and the career tracks that they can lead to and everything, the focus is actually on the practical application versus the theoretical. Mm -hmm. As you say, if you do well and you decide at some point, hey, I want to go on and get my degree in double E or mechanical engineering or something like that, you can. But... For that initial AAS or for that certification you're going after, you know, the math is focused on 
giving you the tools you need to do that job, to have that that skill set, that knowledge level that you need to be effective as a technician at that level. Yeah, and and I think you you know this as well. Industry just doesn't have the engineers sitting in the office somewhere. They mm-hmm. engineers are basically design. Yeah, they design. Then they give it to the technician, which is the STEM areas, which is the engineering technologies, and they say make it work. But they don't leave you off on your own. Everything's in teams nowadays. You, engineers are working with the technicians. The technicians are help. Hey, you know what? That's a really good design. It looks great on paper, but it's not going to work. We don't have, one, the technology to do that yet. We don't have the material to make that happen. So technicians are so important. It used to be back in the day, the engineers, that's all you needed. Not anymore. Well, you know, that's one reason why airplanes are easier to fix now than they were 30 or 40 years ago, because back in the day, the engineers designed the aircraft with no thought yep. about the maintainers out there on the flight line or on the carrier who actually had to go in there and fix it. So you That's hear why these they used hard... to say the hammer was my best friend. Oh, make exactly. That... <laughs> the aircraft adjustment tool, as, as they used to call it. I had friends in the Air Force you know, who said on some of the aircraft, literally, they would have to reach up into a dark bay in the bottom of the aircraft and by the feel method try to find that component that they're looking for. Because somebody with an aeronautical engineering degree thought, well, we'll just stick it up here, you know, and let the uh, maintenance guys worry about it when Mm -hmm. that comes around. Now, as you said, everybody's working as a team, and there is thought being given to, let's make this piece of technology, let's make this equipment, let's make this aircraft easier to repair because if it's easier to fix it gets back in operation and it's able to meet the mission generate revenue much more effectively than if it's going to be down for two or three days because it's impossible to reach that particular component that has to be fixed and what's nice is that a lot of these companies here are looking for the two-year aas degree technician level absolutely they want to go right to work you have the experience now you got the know-how and the engineers there for the designing aspect of it in the time we've got left, let's talk about, you know, where STEM education is right now and, more importantly, where you see it going in the next three, five, ten years. Um, STEM education is, it's been around for a long time, but I think it's finally congealing to where people in companies understand what that actually means. I don't need an engineer to do this, to run my automation system. I need a mechatronics or I need an EET, per, an engineering um, technician, electrical engineering technician. I need someone, I, I need technicians. So that's what's nice about STEM nowadays is no more people just going to get these four-year degrees. Two-year degrees will get you to work and get you a really good job. Back in the day, my dad, you know, retired from the railroad. No degree at all. Mm-hmm. Then it became everybody needs to go get their bachelor's degree. Everybody needs to get that four-year degree. Now we're stepping back a little bit in the STEM areas. Okay, we have the engineers. That's great. But now we need the, the people to actually work on the systems. It's not throwing stuff away anymore. We want to make this stuff work. We want to troubleshoot it. We want to maintain it. We want to do the preventative maintenance to keep this stuff going. That's where these um, STEM technicians come into play. We always hear now about, you know, the rise of AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, stuff like that. So people may be thinking about, it'd be great to get, you know, this type of education and training, but am I going to be replaced by some kind of uh, self-thinking or self-actualized machine at some point down the road? I am so glad you brought that up because that ha- that was, uh, remember the year 2000 when everybody was, mm-hmm. the Y2K, everybody's like, oh my God, my computer. We're now with the AI, we're realizing we need technicians more than ever. And now we're getting more jobs because of that AI, because now we need to know how people have, how we're going to manipulate the software. 
How are we going to manipulate the network? How are we going to make those systems work with the materials and, and the components that we have? We, we're making more jobs. We're not getting rid of jobs. The jobs are changing. We're not getting rid of them. People have to be trained now. It's not no longer you can just graduate with a GED or high school diploma and go to work. You have to have some type of education to work on these systems now. And I'm guessing as AI just mushrooms across the landscape that the demand for people that have these kinds of skills is just going to be off the charts for the yeah. next decade and beyond. Yes, and what's nice is now it's everybody has to learn digital. Everybody has to learn this and analog and digital systems to make this stuff work. So it's across the plane. It's not just very specialized anymore. And so it's nice. It's growing and it's growing. Now we're going to have energy systems coming in. We're going to have car systems. You can't just take off the head of a car and change spark plugs and make this thing go. Now it's like... Oh, my God, what is that computer thing? You mm-hmm. open up a hood of a car, you don't even know what it is anymore. True. So we didn't get rid of those automotive mechanics. Now we've added some specialized people into that mix. The car is still there. Now we're not just hooking up gasoline, right? Now we have to worry about electrical. We have to worry about charging and batteries. So that's adding more jobs. And that's just the car. Think of what else is it's doing with the other industry components that we haven't even talked about. And again, you can acquire the skills and education you need for many of these jobs right here at Thomas Nelson. Once again, Gene, tell people how they can get in touch with you and learn more about the various STEM programs here at Thomas Nelson, including the AAS in tech studies with the specialization in technical supervision. Yes. First off, email me. My my name is Gene Frank, but it's frankj at tncc.edu. Go on to Thomas Nelson's website, tncc.edu, and you can go into there, look up classes and programs, and you can go through the EET program, MET program, mechatronics program, technical supervision program. But please reach out to me. If I don't know it, I will direct you in the right area. And we certainly appreciate that. We've been talking with Gene Frank, who is the program head and associate professor of engineering technologies here at Thomas Nelson Community College, talking about STEM education and how it can benefit members of our local military community. This has been At Ease, the military podcast of Thomas Nelson Community College. I'm Gary Pounder. Thanks for listening.